0: Good morning, church. You can pass them out, sir. We, we're we going to start through Advent. Dale's kind of jumping the gun on me, but that's okay. We're, we're going to be starting a study through Advent this month, and we have packets. Go ahead. Well, let's do it. we got packets. Uh, yeah, we've got about one per family if you'd like a packet. If you have one from last year, it's the same packet, but we want to encourage you to, to go through a study of Advent together uh, with your family, and that's just a guide that can guide you personally and help you lead your family through a study of Advent. If you want one, raise your hand, make Dale feel better. <laughs> but hey, it's hard to believe it's December. And I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's hard for me to believe it's December because I'll tell on myself, I actually have on my nose hair, it's hard to believe it's the last day of November, but it's not. I can't even get the date right. It's the first day of December. Uh, so, Tom flies, and I, w- I hope you've had a blessed Thanksgiving uh, with your family, and, and I will. This is just my little jab, but uh, Thanksgiving's over, right? So, you can get your Christmas tree out, you can start playing your Christmas music. Statistically, in this room, there's probably some oddballs that have had their tree out for three weeks, or have secretly been listening to Christmas music. Uh, you're forgiven this morning, and you're off the hook, because now you're in the clear and you can put your Christmas stuff out, okay? Christmas season's upon us. So what does that mean? As a church body, what does that mean, that Christmas is upon us? So Christmas is a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of family. It's a lot of good things, right? But it also can tend to have a darker side. And here's what I mean by that. If, if you don't know, which I'm sure you do, we live in a hyper-commercialized culture. Um, if you don't believe me, just turn on your TV Get on the internet, go to Walmart anytime in the next few weeks, and it will be blatant in your face. And so I was doing a little digging, and and somewhere in the 19th century, uh, the commercialization of Christmas started to creep in, and people can argue about that date and say it started way long ago. Somewhere along the way, Christmas became over-commercialized, and it's only increased over the years. And so, sadly, this holiday that we know is, is centered around stuff for a lot of people, but as believers in a church, we know that stuff doesn't last, right? It doesn't last. Because here's the deal. A lot of people this Christmas season, a lot of people are are not getting gift get the gift that they want. Okay, some people in here, kids, I hope you've been good. Some some people in here may not even get a gift, right? Everybody, Some kids are in panic mode right now. Some people may not even get a gift. And even those that do get the gift that they wanted the most get bored with it in a short period of time. Right? And if you don't believe me, then just watch your kids. You know, a couple hours after they open presents, they're bored and you're like, What are you talking about? So, as exciting as gifts can be, that that's not what Christmas is about. It can't be what Christmas is about, because it doesn't last. Right? And so we also hear in the culture that Christmas is it's about family. It's synonymous with family time. And family's a good thing. Family is a gift from God. If you read scripture, family is a gift from God. Children are a gift from God. But even in those things, we can be let down. And and after a short period of time, many of us in this room, you don't have to raise your hand, but many of us in this room only remember why our family is so annoying, right? Or why that uncle or their aunt or that one person that's in your family, you're like, oh, I forgot how annoying they were. And you got this idea in your head that this Christmas, this Christmas is going to be great. Everybody's going to get along. Uh, there's probably a lot, I don't want to stereotype, but probably a lot of women in here in the room. This is going to be it. This is going to be the year that everybody gets along. We're all going to have a great time. And it doesn't take long at all to figure out that that's never going to be the case. Maybe next year, but it's never going to be the case. And there's some people in here, no doubt, that are thinking, man, I love my family and it's great. And there's nothing wrong with it. And all I have to say with you is, to you is, God bless you. What a gift, but know this, even in that family where the family's great, everything's wonderful, there comes a time where we've got to leave. So you gather the family together, and there's still this time where we've got to separate and go our separate ways. So even if the family dynamic is perfect, there's a letdown there, because everybody leaves and goes their own way, oh, Christmas is over, and there's a letdown. Some people even dread the holiday season just because their family don't get along, or even recent loss of loved ones make the holiday season difficult. So even though family's a good thing, family can't be what Christmas is about because it doesn't last. So gifts don't last, families don't last, and we could go through example after example after example, but through all of them, we would have some kind of emotional letdown or disappointment because it didn't last. And so the culture, even though the culture is pressing on us about gifts, it's pressing on us about families, it's pressing on us about all these other things, it's pressing hard on your children, we've got to fight the urge to be controlled by the culture. And I want you to hear me on this, because I don't want anybody to leave in here today and can you believe what he said. Gifts are not a bad thing. Family's not a bad thing. But as believers, as a church body, that's not to be our primary focus. Because those things don't last. If we put our hope in those things, we're only going to be let down. So we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what's lasting? If gifts don't last, if families don't last, what does last? What can I put my hope in? And so the, the answer to that question is what leads us to this study of Advent. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Advent and celebrating Advent together as a church body. And all Advent means, maybe you've grown up and you've celebrated Advent. Uh, I'm fairly certain that my wife did. That's not something that I ever recall hearing about until I was older. So some of you maybe know what it is, and some of you don't. But all Advent means is the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. That's all Advent means. And so as a church, we recognize that that notable person is Jesus Christ. And that notable event was his birth and his coming into the world. So as believers, that's what Christmas is to be about for us. It's to be about Jesus Christ. He's what's lasting. Gifts don't last. Families don't last. So many other things don't last. But He is what's lasting, and that's where we can find no letdown. But as we celebrate the coming of Jesus, it's more about, Jed mentioned this a minute ago, it's more than just about baby Jesus. It's an opportunity for us as a church to look backward and to look forward. So Jesus did really come roughly 2,000 years ago as a baby. He lived a sinless life, and He died on the cross for my salvation and for your salvation. But that's not the end of the story. He's coming again, and He's going to restore all things to the way that they're supposed to be. Absolutely, hallelujah. So we can look back and be grateful for what Jesus did, but we also as a church and believers look forward to in anticipation of what He's going to do. That's, that's the purpose of Advent. So on this journey, as we study about Advent, on this journey, we're going to learn about God. That's kind of the whole point. We're going to learn about God, and today I want to I want us to learn or to reinforce the idea of three things, and that's the transcendence of God, the eminence of God, and our God is a deliverer. So if you're a point-by-point point person, there's three points, two of them are going to be quick, we're going to spend some time on the third one. If you want to come up and take a picture of this later, I know some people in the back probably can't see it, all I'm doing for you today, all I hope to do, is I'm providing you with a general outline for you to study on your own. There's no way in 40 to 45 minutes that, that all of this can be covered. I want you to dig on your own and come to know who God is and come to really realize what Jesus has done. And I think if we get a basic grasp on the transcendence and imminence of God, it's going to open our eyes to the wonder of Advent. We can truly appreciate what Advent is. So some of you may not know, and that's fine. Big words that we don't use. So what's transcendence? Transcendence just means to exist above and independent from. To rise above, surpass, or succeed. So it's this idea, I want you to think, greatness of God. God is the only true transcendent being because He's totally separate and unlike anything else. He's above creation. That's all transcendence means. It's the greatness of God. And you can see it all throughout Scripture. Specifically in Isaiah 40, verse 12 says, "...who has measured the waters..." This is speaking about God. "...who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance." So he's talking about earth. He's talking about these great wonders of earth that we see as great wonders, and how small they are to God. If you think I had a professor to use this analogy in class, or this illustration... And he said, if you walk down, if anybody in this room walk down to the ocean, so most people have been to the beach at some point in their life, and you walk down to the ocean and you take your two hands and you scoop up water in the ocean with your two hands, what happens to the water level? If somebody's standing back at, at the front of the beach like, Hey, Dad, it didn't do anything. Now the water didn't go anywhere. They didn't go down. It's, it's, you can't even measure what you've done. by putting your, But God, it says here in Isaiah 40, he measures the water in the hollow of his hand. Like he can take his two hands and he can take a scoop of the whole ocean. It's this idea of the greatness of God. That's eminence. In verse 22 of Isaiah 40, it says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Think about how large we think the earth is. And it says, God sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So think about you and a grasshopper. How small and insignificant a grasshopper is. And God sits above the circle of the earth and you become the grasshopper. That's the greatness of God. In Isaiah 55, 9, it says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. That's the greatness of God. That's God's God's transcendence. If you think about characteristics that line up here, we're talking about God's sovereignty, how He's in complete control, His holiness, His righteousness, how He's perfectly pure, His justice. That's God's transcendence. David said this in Psalm 145. He said, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. You can't even fathom the greatness of God. So that's the transcendence of God. Well, what's the eminence of God? The eminence of God is just simply His presence with creation. Colossians 1.17 says, And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Let me tell you what that means. We do not believe as a church body that God created the earth, He put it on its axis, He spun it, and He sat in His chair and just let it spin. That's not what Colossians 1.17 says. It says, and in him all things hold together. He is actively working in creation all the time. That's God's eminence. The fact that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere all the time. You can't even if you stop and you think about that, you can't even wrap your head around it. You can't even begin to. He's omnipresent, he's everywhere. So so God's eminence is all the ways that he interacts with his creation. That's you and me and the world around. So here's the point that I want to make about those two things. Why are you talking about transcendence? Why are you talking about eminence? We're supposed to be talking about Advent. What's the point? Here's the point. How often do we take the time to dwell on God's transcendence? In other words, how often do you recognize the greatness of God? How often do you pause like David in Psalm 145 to recognize the greatness of God? Or is it just something that you and I take for granted? I think one of our greatest flaws is to immediately rush to God's eminence. What do we want to talk about? We want to talk about God's love and how loving He is. Which is absolutely true. But if that's the first thing that we run to, then we flirt with this idea of failing to recognize our true place. We don't recognize that we're the grasshopper. Isaiah 40 also says that the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Think about the power and might of the United States of America. Not my intent to get political, but think about the power and the might of the United States of America and the world scene. And God says, the nations, the United States of America is like a drop in the bucket. Nothing compared to my power. So if we automatically run to God's eminence, we can fall into this trap of thinking, well, God loves me because I'm lovable. Which is a big fat lie for everybody in the room. That's not why God loves you. And when we think that, it diminishes the greatness of God. We can't truly appreciate God's eminence, the fact that He interacts with creation, until we recognize His greatness and the fact that He doesn't owe me, He doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't have any need to interact with us. God did not create the world because He was lonely. And when you understand that, and we come to Advent, it makes the sacrifice of Jesus so much more powerful and meaningful. So as we journey through Advent, I want to challenge you, don't simply rush to God's eminence, but take a moment and dwell on His transcendence, on His greatness. Because when you do, it makes His eminence that much sweeter. The fact that He can speak to you is so much sweeter when you realize how great and powerful He is. So the last thing, I told you this first two points were going to be quick. The third one, not so much. Hang with me, we're going to jump around. And like I said, I want to give you a template to go back and study on your own and dig on your own. Stretch outside this, this basic outline. But the last thing is I want to look at this idea of God as a deliverer. I want you to know your God as a deliverer. He is a faithful God that's faithful to his promises and he rescues his people. You can see that in Genesis 3.15, which is kind of like the anchor scripture for this whole this whole message. But Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is, this is the first foreshadowing in scripture that we get of Jesus. So foreshadowing, some people have English 1 panic attacks, but if we go back to English class, foreshadowing is the before, Right? It's, it's telling you before of what is going to come. It's, this first, it's actually called the Proto-Evangelium, which just means the first gospel. This is the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. Genesis 3.15. And it's just looking forward. You could call it a prophecy. It's just looking forward of Jesus is going to come. And He's going to fix this problem that was just created. That's the primary promise of deliverance in the Bible that I want you to see but I want you to stick it in your back pocket, and we're going to come to it in a minute. Okay? I want you to see clearly through Scripture that God is a deliverer. It's a characteristic of God. It's who He is. It's His essence. It's not a one-time occurrence. Genesis 3.15 is not this one single verse that's like, I'm going to get to it someday that I'm going to be a deliverer. That's not the case. It's a characteristic. It's who He is. It's something you can see regularly throughout all of Scripture. So to support this idea, we're going to look at four case studies in the Old Testament. The first is going to be in Genesis chapter 6. If you want to scribble these down, if you want to try to bounce around, go for it. If you want to scribble these down to study on your own, later you can. But the first, we're going to look in Genesis chapter 6, and this is where we see the story of Noah and his family. In Genesis 6, 9 through 13, it says this, These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So in that short passage, we see that all mankind was wicked, with the exception of Noah. And in verse 9, we see something very unique that I want you to highlight, underline, make a scribble and note. In verse 9, it says that Noah walked with God. What happens when we walk with somebody? Imagine you and a very close friend are enjoying a walk. Just walking down the road. You're in close proximity, right? You're close. You talk, you laugh, you listen, you share your hearts with each other. Your attention is focused on that person. So it's almost like you don't see anything else. You'll notice distractions, but when you notice them or you notice things outside of you and the other person, you notice them to share them with the other person. Say, imagine you're walking on a trail. Not my thing to do, but imagine you're walking on a trail. Look at that. Look how pretty that is. You point it out to the other person. You don't get distracted and leave that person out of it. You share things together. That's, that's what it means to, to walk with someone. And Noah walked with God. What happens is, it, when this relationship, God became Noah's heart's greatest desire. Knowing him, hearing his voice, sharing his heart with him, and seeking to please him becomes his all-consuming focus. It becomes everything to him. It should become everything to us. That's what it means to walk with God. Meeting with him is not an activity reserved for Sunday morning. We live to fellowship with him. Not occasionally, but constantly. That was Noah's relationship with God. It was intimate. We talked about that earlier this morning. It was intimate. As a result, Noah was God's. Noah was God's, and God delivers him from the flood to come. He gave Noah directions to build an ark that would deliver his family. I want you to make a note of this God gave him directions, God didn't give him the boat. You understand that? God gave him directions, he didn't give him the boat. This required obedience. Noah had to build the boat. Noah was faithful to the task that God gave him, and as a result, he was delivered from the flood. We see that in Genesis chapter seven, eleven through twenty four. It says in the six hundred year of Noah's life, in the second month of the seventeenth of the seventeenth day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah two and two of all the flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a 150 days. Noah was God's and God delivers His people. We look at our second, second case study. We turn to the book of Exodus. You see the story of Moses and the Israelites. A story that most of you in here would be familiar with. And the Israelite people, people are delivered from slavery. In Exodus 1, 8 through 8-14, it says this, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, pit them in Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So the Israelite people came to Egypt by way of famine. If you know the end of Genesis and the story there, the Israelite people end up, Joseph's family ends up in Egypt by way of famine because they needed food, and Egypt had the food. So over time, they grew greatly in number and out of favor with Egypt, resulting in their enslavement. Egypt as a nation recognized, man, these, these people are growing, and they're going to outnumber us before long. If they outnumber us, they can overtake us. So they're a threat. So as a result, they endure difficulty, hardship, and pain for an extended period of time, as Egypt puts them into slavery. But here's what's remarkable in Exodus 2:23 through 25. It says, "During those many days, of the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob." God saw the people of Israel. I want you to hear this. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. That's what Scripture says. So we know clearly from Scripture that God knows the situation of His children and that God hears the cry of His children. Then in Exodus 3 7 through 10, we see this. It says, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen, I've seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. Again, so God knows the situation of His children, and He hears the cries of His children. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you, he's talking to Moses, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So not only does God know the situation of his people, not only does God hear the cries of his children, but God intervenes on their behalf. And if you look at Exodus 6, you see that God, again, promises deliverance. It's an absolutely fabulous chapter of the Bible that I want to encourage you to go and read. But God basically says, this is who I was, and this is what I promised, and this is who I am, and this is who I will be. And who I will be is the same as who I was. And it's the same as who I am today, because I am who I am. And we go on to see Moses goes down, and it's not without hardship, it's not without difficulty. God brings the plagues, He turns water to blood, He sends frogs, he sends gnats, he sends flies, he kills livestock, he sends bulls, he sends hail, he sends locusts, he sends darkness, and then finally we see the death of every firstborn, and we see the Passover, which is a picture of Jesus Christ. And what do you see in the Passover? I've said this before, but if you really honestly can put yourself in that situation, this is year one of the Passover. This is not something that's taken place before. And some guy struts up to your house and says, hey... Kill that lamb, take its blood, spread it on your doorpost. What are you thinking? There's no way at any time in the history of the world that that's a cultural norm. There's no way. If somebody walked up to your house today and told you to do that, you would look at them like they were a fool and tell them to get off your property. So what did that require? For the Israelites to do what was commanded in the Passover, what did it require? It requires faith and obedience. And then what's crazy is, so they, they follow through. Death comes, infuriates or creates mourning in the Egyptian nation. And the Pharaoh finally is like, get out of here. And the people are free. But it doesn't take very long for all that mourning to turn into anger and wrath. And so here comes the Egyptian army that trails the Israelites out of Egypt and they get pinned in. They're pinned in between the army and the water of the Red Sea. And then God parts the Red Sea right before their very eyes. But maybe you've never thought about this before. God parts the Red Sea, but He didn't pick them up and set them down on the other side. They still had to walk. They still had to walk across. And and you can imagine if there's any hint of a rational human being in that Israelite camp... That guy's thinking, as I know, as soon as I get halfway, these waters are going to tumble down on top of me. I mean, that's a thought that had to be real. So they had to be faithful and obedient and walk through. So God rescues His people. I'm, I'm, you're going to hear that again. God rescues His people who are faithful and obedient. We get to the third and we look at, we look at David. 1 Samuel 17 we find a situation where the Israelites are at war with the Philistines, and the Philistines have the upper hand. They largely have the upper hand due to a giant named Goliath. And what we see in verses 8-11 through of 1 Samuel 17 is Goliath is mocking the Israelite army and he challenges them. It says, "...he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come out to draw up for battle? "'Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? "'Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. "'If he's able to fight with me and kill me then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. We go on in, in chapter 17 to verse 26 and then verses 31 through 37. And it says, And David said to the men, So David shows up on the scene. He was a shepherd boy. He was far off. He's coming to bring his brother's food. And he shows up and he's like, what the heck's going on? It says, and David said to the man who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What happens to the guy that takes this guy out? What's on the line? Who is this guy that he's actually defying God? Do you understand he's not defying the army, he's defying God. It goes on to say, When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. So word travels. David beat his chest a little bit, and word traveled to Saul. So Saul sends for him, and David said to Saul, basically the same thing, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go fight this Philistine, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. You carry on to verses 41 and 50. I want you to listen to the words of David in battle with Goliath. It says, And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David quickly ran toward the battle line to meet the Philistine and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. So you see, against all odds, God delivers the Israelites through the most unlikely of heroes. David, a young boy who demonstrated what? Faith and obedience. He didn't walk up to Goliath and said, I'm man enough. He said, you come to me with sticks, you little boy. And he didn't say this little boy's man enough to whack your head off. That's not what he said. He said, "God will deliver you into our hand." So he acted out of faith and obedience, and God delivered him and deliver, delivered the Israelites. The last thing we'll look at is Daniel chapter six. This is a story of Daniel in the lion's den. All of these stories you should know about, but I want you to recognize God as a deliverer. Daniel was a faithful man. And some of the leadership at the time sought to find fault in Daniel. It's one of those situations that everybody in here has been been in. This guy's working too hard. He's making us look bad. And so we want to find some dirt on him. That's, that's the basic scenario. Repeated multiple times over the course of human history. Daniel's making these guys look bad. They want to find dirt on him, but they can't. So in verses 5 through 9 of, of Daniel 6, these men scheme against Daniel because of his faith. They say, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel. We can't find anything on him unless we find any connection with the law of his God. So these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they said to, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius, signed the document and the injunction. So these guys can't find any dirt on Daniel. They know he's faithful. We know he prays to his God every day. So we'll go to the king and we'll get him to create a law to where if he prays to anybody other than the king, he's going to be guilty and get thrown into the lion's den. And that's exactly what they do. And they get the king to sign the law. It says, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, once the law is put into the place, the law cannot be revoked. The only thing that can be done is a new law can be written that overrides that law. But you can't take that one back. You see the same thing in the book of Esther. They can't take the law back. So what was Daniel's response to this edict? His response is, he remained faithful to God. In verse 10, it says, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, so he knew it, he went to his house where he, had prayed, where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I think there's a little lesson to be learned in those few little words. Daniel's faithful, and it says, He did these things as he had done previously. He didn't see the law and go, well, I disagree with the law, so ten times over I'm going to make a point to these people to do something different. It's not what he did. He was just faithful, and he did as he had done previously. He just did the same thing. He didn't go out of his way to make a point, to try to prove a point. He just carried on and did what he had done previously and remained faithful. And as a result, because he broke the law, Daniel was found guilty, which resulted in him being thrown to the lines. Verses 16 through 23. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. And the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at day of break, the king arose and went into haste to the den of lions. And he came near to the den where Daniel was. He cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. May God, my God send his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Daniel was delivered because he was God's and he was faithful and he was obedient. These are just four examples, four brief examples that I wanted to show you that you can find in Scripture, but many more can be found. But just through these four, we can be confident that God recognizes His people, He knows their situation, He hears their cry, and He's a God who intervenes. He's a God who delivers. Now, maybe this morning, you don't feel that. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's all in well and good that God intervened for Noah, He intervened for David, He intervened for Daniel, and He intervened for the Israelite nation. But what about me? I'm dealing with this, I'm dealing with that, and I don't see any intervention. So you're telling me that God's deliver, but I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't see it. Here's how I would respond to that. And here's how I think Scripture would respond to that. Three things. Three questions. Number one, go back and think about Noah. Are you walking with God? Are you walking with God? Number two, is your focus in the right place? And number three, have you failed to recognize the greatest intervention of all, the greatest deliverance of all? Noah was in a bad situation. The world as he knew it was essentially ending. It was over. Everybody was going to be killed. The Israelites were in a bad situation. There was nothing fun about slavery for hundreds of years. David was in a tough spot standing before a giant, Scrawny little boy standing before a giant. And I can't even imagine what it felt like to be Daniel and to be thrown into a pack of lions. And while we see God's deliverance in each of these situations, it's remarkable, it's amazing, but it didn't solve Noah, Israel's, David's, or Daniel's greatest problem. God's deliverance in each of these scenarios was only a shadow of His greatest act to come. The real problem that each of these faced was sin... And it's the same problem that we face today, that I face, that you face. I want you to hear me on this. I don't place my hope in Noah because he was such a righteous man. I don't place my hope in Moses because of his leadership ability. I don't place my hope in David because of his unbelievable courage. I don't place my hope in Daniel because of his faithfulness. I place my hope in God because just as he delivered these men, he can deliver me through Jesus Christ. He can deliver you through Jesus Christ. I mentioned earlier, we looked at Genesis 3.15 and that was our focus. Because this is where we see a glimpse of God's greatest act of deliverance to come. God created a perfect world. Go back to Genesis 1. He created a perfect world free from sin. It only takes two chapters in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve disobey God. Sin enters the world. Death enters the world. This perfect creation is now broken. And what happens is sin separates God from man and actually makes us enemies of God. We're not just separated. We're enemies. And as sinful beings, we're hopeless, destined for wrath, justifiably, justifiably destined for wrath. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, this is the first gospel, the first mention of the gospel. It's a promise of Jesus Christ to come, the one who pays our sin debt with his death on the cross so that our relationship with God can be restored. That's what you see in Genesis 3.15. This is God's greatest act of deliverance. He is a deliverer, and this is His greatest act. And the truth is, it's available to you. Jed mentioned John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son to die on the cross so you can be forgiven. So, but here's the truth. Here's the truth about that verse. God loved the world. God loved all people. Christ died for the world. Christ died for all people. But here's the truth. It's only effectual for some. It only accomplishes what it was sent to do. It only accomplishes that for some. And those some are the people of God. The ones that choose to follow Jesus Christ in faith. The ones who are obedient. Look again at Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Listen, between your offspring and her offspring. What's he talking about? Your offspring and her offspring. Satan's offspring and Eve's offspring. There's only two classifications of humanity that ultimately matter. Two classifications of people. God's people and those that aren't. And you see that all the way back in Genesis 3.15. If you look again at these four examples in the Old Testament... God, without a doubt, is a deliverer. But who does He deliver? His own people. Those who are faithful and obedient to His call. This, if we walked through the Old Testament this morning. It may seem odd to you. It's a weird way to kick off Christmas. To walk through the Old Testament. But if you're a follower of Christ, it should be a cause for joy because you should be reminded that you serve a God who delivers His people. That's what Advent is all about. Looking back, looking forward. A Savior who has delivered us from sin and who will return and make all things right. But if you're not a follower of Christ, here's my prayer, that the words of Scripture will grab your attention. Gifts are great. families great. But none of them last. And they're all going to let you down. The real celebration this Christmas is found in a God whose desire is to deliver you a god who sent his only son to die in your place so that he could know you, love you, rescue you. But it requires faith and obedience on your end. A decision to place your life in his hands and recognize him as king. You say I don't I don't I don't sense deliverance in my life. Well, the fact that you're here this morning is not coincidence. Statistics alone a very small percentage of the population is in church this morning. The fact that you're here this morning is not a coincidence. It's, it's purpose. And it goes back to the transcendence and imminence of God. He has a plan for your life and He desires to deliver you today and He's very capable of delivering you today. I want you to understand that God is a deliverer, but He delivers His people. And if you're not one of His people, He desires for you to be one of His people. This morning we're going to have communion. And and as we're transitioning here, I want you to just pause and reflect. Let's just pray for a moment. Pause and reflect. I want you to think about the greatness of God and what it means that He chose to interact with you, that He chose to interact with His creation to the point of sending His only Son to die for something you did. Not something he did, something that you did to take on wrath that you deserved, not him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your greatness. A greatness that we can't even fathom. How you sit upon sit above the earth and we're like grasshoppers. But that for some reason, Lord, you're you're also a God of great eminence that, that interacts with your creation. And even though we're grasshoppers, you, you interact with us, you care for us, you love us. And you sent your son to die for us so that we can find salvation and relationship with you. Lord, I pray that we would recognize that this morning, I pray if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that today would be the day that they would claim to know you, that they would place their faith in you and would recognize you as a deliverer whether it be through shadows in the Old Testament, Lord, or the ultimate deliverance of of Your act in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank You for being a deliverer and that You would choose for some reason to deliver us. Lord, I pray that we would be a faithful people, that we would be an obedient people, and that we would live all of our days to serve You so that others may come to know You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.